It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast. This season of 12 episodes is devoted to the wild wonder of water. And in this, episode 8, we discuss the human stories of seas and rivers with collector of legends Dee Dee Cheney. Dee Dee and her friend Willow Winsham run Folklore Thursdays, where they gather with like-minded people on social media to explore tales of folklore from around the world. And they've now collected their findings in a book, The Treasury of Folklore, published by Batsford. Dee Dee kindly agreed to chat about watery folklore with me and share some of the tales she's discovered, read by herself and by our very own Hannah Tribe. And join us later for the podcast postbag and our lovely sound of the week. In an ideal world, we'd be walking by a river together chatting, but in lockdown, we are face-to-face over Zoom. So this book is Treasury of Folklore, Seas and Rivers, and you've written it with Willow Winsham. Um, What inspired you to tackle the amazing sort of maze of folklore that Britain has, particularly about rivers and waterways? Well... We wanted to bring together a lot of the folklore that we get every Thursday on our hashtag day. Um, We get participants from all over the world and they bring so many different tales um, and customs with them from their own parts of the world. And over time, we noticed similarities between the things that people were bringing from really disparate parts of the world and um, people would often have little rows between themselves you know oh it doesn't end like that here it ends like this and then somebody else would jump in you know and give their version and it's lovely because you could see how the folklore is unfolding and spreading across different regions and the country and then even the world and from there we thought It would just be so nice to be able to bring a lot of these stories together, really. I mean, I think at the moment and over the last few years, there's been a lot of friction between different communities and different people from different places. And we really... (laughs) Yeah. It's an understatement, really. (laughs) But, um, yeah, we really wanted to just help that along and show how people can be really similar. and. We thought this was a lovely way to do that, to show how we all have the same stories. We all have the same concerns and respond in the same ways to things around us. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, just to 
just to set for, for the listeners, it, so, so this is a global collection of folk uh, folk stories. It's not just the UK. Absolutely. We were really quite nervous of putting this together because there's been a long history of cultural appropriation when it comes to folklore and who owned which tale or which custom. And the lines are often blurred when it comes to the tales because they come from so many different places. But we were really nervous of putting this together because we wanted to put something together as a book that would really showcase humanity as a whole and global folklore. But we were also really aware that some of these tales and traditions are not our own. So we've had to try really hard to take versions of the stories told by the people that they belong to. And it was a big concern for us to try and phrase them and use the words that the people themselves would use so they're really authentic and not changed by the way we put them forward and the way we word them. Um, so we tried to get a really good representation of sea folklore and river folklore from the perspectives of all the different people around the world, as much as we could. I mean, you can't fit absolutely everything in. No, no, no. <laughs> a taster. So what sort of themes? I mean, there's, there are so many things to unravel in what you said there, and there's lots of things that I'd love to tackle. But let's start with some of the, the big themes, that the, the actual detail of what these stories surround. Are, are they sort of tales of monsters, tales of river spirits? What, what sort of things do you, do you encounter? There are all kinds of things, really, and we didn't want to limit ourselves to just tales. We wanted to put in customs, different kinds of beliefs and traditions. So we started off just researching ourselves. We tried not to bring preconceptions with what we'd find, what we'd find, and we just chose a random place to start and followed the thread from there. And what we found was quite interesting. A lot of the folklore around seas, particularly, is very much about fears and dreams. And they're quite, they're quite profound things when it comes to like how humans live within their world. And I'd like to think of Anthony Gormley's statues. He's got an art installation near Liverpool, where I live, up in Blondell Sands, and it's called Another Place. And what they are is that they're statues on the beach looking out to the sea, to the river. And it's quite an amazing thing when you go and you visit this, because depending on when you go, the time of day and the weather, they embody such different things. If you're in a bad mood and it's a grey, stormy day, it's almost as if the statues are looking out bereft into the waves, looking for hope. But then if you go on a summer's day, it's like they're looking out and enjoying what they're looking at and, you know, enjoying the waves and the feel of the wind on their skin. And it's amazing because it's almost as if they're like a mirror to your own feelings. And I think really that's what the sea does. It mirrors humanity back at us. So whatever we bring to the waters, that's what we see. And 
the tales that unfolded are twofold. They're very much about our fears and the things that lurk in the deep, the monsters, the things that will drag us down and drown us in the depths. But also, they're very much about the things we might find, the treasures, the alluring depths of the sea and the possibilities that it holds. Um, Gormley's sculptures, which I have visited, and they are utterly wonderful, eerie, all, all those things you mentioned. It sounds like there's a folklore already being created about them, which, uh, from what you're saying, that the stories aren't just old things, that they are new things that can be conjured any time. Is that something... That, well, I mean, I like to think that, but is that something you've come across with your research? In terms of folklore and the tales we create being very contemporary, I'd have to say absolutely. I mean, a lot of people do think of folklore as something very much of the past. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That Yeah, it's old stories that we retell, but we kind of laugh at these, you know, it's just a load of hokum from the past. But interesting that there's a more modernity. Yeah, I mean, not so relevant, but a little bit relevant to this book. Modern folklore is a very real thing um something as modern as internet memes are actually classed as folklore because really it's it just it's just talking about something that is a shared belief a tradition that is passed on from one person to the next and that's as relevant now as it was a hundred five hundred years ago we all do it every day i find that quite reassuring there's a lot of the stuff that we, it's, I'm slightly fearful of all the Twitter memes and things that bounds about in the world, but actually they just, from what you're saying, it's like they have a thread through through folklore. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by rivers. It's one of the reasons why we've got a aquatic, a watery season of podcasts. I can't cross over, as people who've listened to previous podcasts, I can't walk over a bridge or by a river without looking in and being spellbound. Um, it sounds like that's part of the folklore for what you're saying, the sort of allure and the fear. Is that the same for rivers as well as the sea, or is that something slightly different for, for, the, for the sort of river spirits and the river the relationships with running water? I think it's absolutely the same. Um, you actually get a lot of similarities and differences in the folklore between rivers and seas. Um, I think, personally, I often find it very difficult to find out where one begins and one ends. Really, where's the point where a river becomes the sea? It's so weird to me. Um, but yeah, the folklore is quite interesting in the crossover. And I think it's very much to do with the people who are using and creating that folklore. I mean, just here in Britain, we have some examples of creatures that do drag us to the depth that we've created. And in the Outer Hebrides, we have the Blue Men of Minch. So they're creatures who live in the water and they can raise storms and they are said to patiently wait to drag sailors into the sea. And in a different region, close, but still, you know, different, we have the Finn men of Orkney. And they're quite similar. They can take sailors off to their underworld, underground, underwater realm. Um, and then as far as Japan, you have something really similar, the Funayore, who are dead sailors that have drowned, who, again, 
want to take their revenge on the people who are still alive and they drag sailors into the deep to drown them. Funayore, the vengeful drowned sailors of Japan. When out at sea on rainy days in Japan, particularly on the night of a new moon, it's wise to take precautions against the Funayore, those remnants of drowned sailors who are still intent on taking revenge on others for their lost lives, and adventures cut short by ladling water into boats with a view to sinking them. One must remember to always carry some rice balls that can be thrown into the sea to ward off such horrors. If these are unavailable, another solution is to prepare a water ladle, the kind used in a tea ceremony with a missing bottom, and this is a sure way to protect yourself from these watery fiends. Um, so there's a whole world of creatures of the sea that are waiting there just to drown sailors at any given opportunity. But it's quite interesting because you have something quite similar in rivers and pools inland. And you see this in Lancashire and Shropshire, particularly with creatures like Ginny Greenty. Now, she's a water witch. You might have heard of her. I have, yes, I have. Um, I'm not, not someone I really ever want to meet, but... Um... Oh, absolutely. She's, she's terrifying. And, um, you know, she's a water witch. And in the past, I think it was a cautionary tale where parents would tell their children, don't go too close to the edge of the river or the pool because Jimmy Greenteeth will come and get you. And she's supposed to have really long arms to reach up from under the water to <laughs> grab the children if they go too close. And really, when you compare that to the similar sea stories, you can see that that's obviously a really deep-rooted fear that we all have of drowning. And how that manifests really depends on our experience of water and where we live. If you're not near the sea, they're in the rivers. If you're on the coast and a sailor, they're coming right for you, you know. So a lot of these are, are so stemming from fear. So I'm guessing a lot of fishermen's tales and a lot of um, sailors' tales are sort of explaining the unknown. I mean, things like mermaids uh, have, have always been, had this long tradition, well, kind of negative presence, sort of dangerous sirens luring people to their death and others, others offering certainly something more enjoyable. <laughs> um, are sailors seeing something? Are, they, are these seals? Are they, I mean, do, I guess we don't know, but do you have, a, after sort of seeing so many of these stories, do you form an opinion of what might be the basis for some of the, particularly mermaids? But f- I'm not absolutely sure where this comes from, but one of my favourite pieces that I've read about this is that Christopher Columbus himself in the 15th century said that mermaids are not half as beautiful as they are painted. And people think he was actually seeing manatees or sea cows. So I don't really think that conforms to the kind of alluring idea that we sometimes have of mermaids. But you can imagine, you know, living near the coast on a misty day or when the light's fading, you know, you see something in the water. We get a lot of seals here in the D estuary. Sometimes you think, is that a person in the water? So you can see why, you know, sailors on a ship for that long would look at these creatures. If- yes, if you've, been a, if you've been on a ship for a long time, anything starts to look more. <laughs> there has been much concern regarding the luck or otherwise of particular days when it comes to setting sail. In England and Scotland, 
Sundays were seen as a lucky day to do so, and a voyage beginning on that day would go without a hitch. Wednesday and Thursday were likewise lucky according to Norse tradition, being associated with Odin and Thor respectively, and thus, it was thought, invoking the protection of the god in question. Friday, on the other hand, has been considered an unlucky day for sea journeys in many cultures. The obvious and most frequent connection made is that of it being the day of Christ's crucifixion. On the other hand, Friday was said to be an auspicious day to start a voyage in America, due to many positive events in the history of that nation occurring on that day. For Spanish sailors, Tuesday was a bad day to set sail. As outlined in the proverb, Armates, no te casas, no te embarques, no de te mujer botase. On Tuesday, don't marry, go to sea, or leave your wife. Making a wine glass ring would cause the death of a sailor, and if the glass actually broke, then any number of disasters could occur. Whistling close to the sea could have perilous consequences, as could anything going wrong during the naming of the ship. Although red sky the night before setting sail could be seen as a positive sign, if it happened come morning, that was another matter entirely, and the sailor should beware of what might be about to befall him. Uh, do you have a, a particularly favourite story that you've you've come across? I actually do. Um, similar to mermaids are the selkies of Orkney, and I think Shetlands have some stories too. And basically, they're very similar to mermaids in that they're kind of like half sea creatures and half humans. But what selkies do is when they're in the water, they basically take seal form. And then when they come up on land, they step out of their skin and take it off. And beneath their seal skin, they're actually humans. So they take human form and they can roam like we do. And then when they go back to the sea, they put back on their skin and they go off as a seal. And there are some fabulous stories about selkies. Um, Some of them are quite interesting in terms of the social message that they might give us. You know, there's one about a selkie woman who comes onto shore and a man falls in love with her and takes her skin. And then, in essence, marries her, or keeps her captive in his house and they have children. And then one day she finally finds her skin and disappears back into the waters, never to be seen again. And there are quite a lot of tales like that, but I think my favourite actually has to be a different one, which is quite sad. And that's the Great Silky of Sewell Skerry. And I'd actually like to read that for you. There's a famous Orcadian ballad about such a creature called the Great Silky of Sewell Skerry. In this tragic tale, an Orkney maiden falls in love with a Selkie man, who abandons her shortly after she gives birth to their child. Seven years later, a seal appears to her and tells her that he is her lover, only to dive once more into the sea. Another seven years pass, and the seal appears once more. This time he gives the gift of a golden chain to their son, who goes with him to live in the sea. The woman remarries, and many years later, her husband is out hunting one day and shoots two seals. On returning to the house, he gives his wife the gold chain that he found around the neck of the younger seal. 
she soon realises that her husband has tragically killed both her son and Selkie lover. Do you go out exploring rivers in the hope of finding more folklore or finding stories yourself? Are you, are you, are you a river? I mean, I know you're, it'd be good to talk about your Folklore Thursday project because obviously you're dealing with a whole realm of folklore there. But are you, are you, I mean, you, 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 you mentioned living on the, on the River Dee. Is that somewhere you go exploring? Or do you have a favourite place to explore? Lots of questions there. Well, I mean, I, at the moment, I actually live on the River Mersey, um, but I did live on the River Dee a little while ago. I seem to hop between the two rivers because they're both so amazingly different. The River Mersey is very industrial and there's a huge history there of shipping. And we have the Albert Dock and masses of docklands, which are amazingly easy to walk around early mornings with all the seabirds. And where I live now, we, we have hundreds of seagulls on our windowsills all the time, screeching. Um, and I, I've always, I grew up in Liverpool. So this stretch of water along the Mersey has always been really close to my heart. And when I've lived away, I've always really missed it. And the wild coastal winds only ever seem to be great when you're not here. Um, <laughs> yes, not true. Yeah, I too lived in Liverpool for a while. And uh, yeah, I can vouch for the sort of, that is that allure and also the slight, it's, it's bracing. That's definitely the perfect word for it. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's, it's lovely to go out in the mornings and walk through the winds when it's eerie and quiet. And I love walking right along the prom, we call it, with, along the riverside. Um, but when I was small, I actually lived on the other end of the prom, near Otter's Pool, which... When we were when we were when we were teenagers, we used to walk through the park, and somehow there was a little tale about ghosts, or we should be really scared. And I remember one stormy evening in particular, walking just at the edge of the waters and turning into the park, and then becoming so scared. We'd obviously wound each other up, and we just raced through the park, terrified that the ghosts were after us or something like that. And um, it's quite interesting that a few years ago, while I was researching folklore, I actually found a 19th century poem about the nymph of Dingle Dell. And then the book it was in said that the poem was written about a water spirit that was said to lurk around the Otter's Pool area. So I do wonder over the years if, if that, mysterious water spirits had turned into more of a local ghost and a reason why the teenagers should all be really scared. I, I love that. It's like it's just left a sort of etching in the mental, human mental landscape of the area. That's a really nice thought. Well, not nice when you're a small child. It's as if, like you, you were saying, that parents sort of create folklore from as, as a means of sort of stopping kids doing things all through the ages but actually perhaps children also help reinvent that folklore through their own stories and their own inventions and imaginations sort of untrammeled by modern schooling that sort of thing people can let let things um but what a lovely thing that 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 could evolve just through a sort of gentle tangents here and there 
and and you felt that the ghost of an ancient bit of folklore. So tell, tell me about Folklore Thursday. It's not something you've actually heard of, but it's a project that you and Willow run together, which it gathers gathers stories. Is that? It does. We decided to set it up about six years ago now, and we both frequented Twitter quite a lot. Um, there were a lot of hashtag days about at the time where people would gather and share tweets about a specific topic and you can gather those with hashtags so we thought there's nothing that really exists for folklore specifically which is a shame so then we thought well why don't we just create it and see what happens so we spread the words and soon enough we actually had a lot of people coming every Thursday to tweet their own folklore and they were writing blog posts about folklore local to them and painting pictures and writing poems and all kinds of amazing things. And it was really quite lovely because as it grew, people from around the world started getting involved in all kinds of different countries and time zones and people getting up early so they could come and join in and stay in up late and all kinds. Um, and from there, we realised that we'd, in essence, hit on something that really captured people's imagination and people really love engaging with. So from there, we decided to actually create a website where we could gather some of this stuff. I always think the hashtag days are a little bit like Brigadoon. You know, they, they're conjured just for that one day and then it just disappears into nothing. Yeah, yeah. So it was nice to have something more tangible with the website where we could actually get people who are specialists in different topics and have them write about something that they love and care about and have researched really well. And then that people can come and use that as a resource to find information about their own cultures, about different cultures, and use that in their own lives for fun, a little bit of magic, but also for research and a level of understanding of other people and our own cultures. So, and, and the, the website address is Folklore Thursday? Yes, it's FolkloreThursday.com. FolkloreThursday.com, brilliant. So listeners do drop by and have a, have a look and delve deeper. Where in the UK would you say is the sort of densest or kind of a particular river or county which perhaps generates the most folklore? But also, where would you recommend to go? to kind of feel that atmosphere, if it's possible. I mean, obviously the River Mersey. Where, where, in, the, where in Britain are these stories, the heartland of some of these stories, and where, where to go to find them? Okay, that's a very big question. <laughs> that's, why it's the, that's why it's the last one. <laughs> and the first answer is going to be really awkward. I'm going to say it's all around us. Because everywhere we look, is infused with our own beliefs and traditions. We have our own family traditions, and that is just as valid in terms of folklore. We have traditions that we have with our folk groups, our friend groups, clubs we go to. And really, folklore is there to be unearthed in anything we do. But also, beyond that, when we look at the history of our own areas, we see so many stories when we start to investigate. When I first 
began looking at folklore in my own region, it was amazing the things I found that I never knew about. And then when I said to my parents or my grandparents, do you know about this? They'd say, of course. Of course I know about that. Everybody knows that. How didn't you know? So I would recommend that the listeners do go and talk to people and ask for their local stories, first of all. Really, just talk to relatives, talk to... Uh, and and where else would you go? I mean, we have a... I, I, in the local town here, Abergavenny, we've got a library. Library's a good good starting, but where, where, where to go to get stories is really what I'm saying. Yeah, libraries are fantastic places. They're often hidden in history books, but now... With everything becoming so digital, it's really easy to just do a search online for your local folklore. And you just put in folklore and your local area, or legends, or myths, and these things will all pop up. In terms of where in the UK has the densest folklore, most stories, that's such a hard question. And I think many people will be sitting there screaming, listening to us saying, here, here, we have the most stories. But I think maybe I'm biased. And I will say Wales has such amazing folklore and legends. And when I was a child, I always used to go to North Wales and I'd hear all of the public folklore, the myths and legends and the giants. There are burial sites. And a lot of the burial sites, actually, people think they were giant graves, you know, the prehistoric tomb, because the boulders were so huge that only giants could move them. I, I agree about Wales. I think that's a, a really, uh, really good place to finish. Wales might be the place, the sort of, um, I, I feel it in, in the names of places in Wales as much as, and when you're walking out in a wild place, it's very real. It, I think People are very connected to the landscape and its stories in Wales, more so than, than many parts of, of Britain where I've lived. So a good place to start. Um, and of course, there's also your website, um, folklorethursdays.com. So good, lots of good resources to start local folklore research. Dee Dee, thank you so much. And I hope we can talk again, perhaps about sea monsters at some stage. And, and Dee Dee, can people still send in their stories to you? on Folklore Thursday? Absolutely. We always love to hear people's own folklore and their own legends that they have. So it'd be lovely if you could send them in to us. Obviously, we're always on Twitter on Thursdays, so if you want to write that off or read it out, we'd love to share that. So that was really fun talking to Dee Dee about all the folklore that she's mined over the years with Folklore Thursday. And fascinating to learn that Every waterway and every body of water has some story attached to it. Um, so I'm sort of feeling the urge to go down to the library when it opens again, hopefully, and sort of start hunting around for tales and maybe tell some tales. Oh, I'm joined again, I should say, in my beautiful virtual studio, um, the screen of my laptop by Jack and Hannah, who, without whom the podcast would not exist. Hello and welcome back, chaps. Hello. Hello. Um, how's how's the folklore looking in your area? <laughs> have you have you discovered anything in your time under lockdown? Well, I'm definitely going to look into it. Uh, I'm close to the River Froome. There's got to be some stories there. I think I'm just going to have to dive deep into some books, try and find them. Or just dive deep into the river. Or into the river, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually have walked the length of the River Froome. 
Um, and my story is that, oh, well, I walked out of Bristol because this is the Bristol Freeman. I walked all the way to Yates. So it was about 17 miles in a day. And um, this is, and I reached the end and I lost two toenails because they'd been rubbing. And the lesson, children, is always cut your toes. <laughs> always, <laughs> always, always cut, cut your toenails. <laughs> <laughs> always cut your toenails before you go on a long walk because um, they weren't long, but they just weren't short enough. And it was, and I, this, this, yeah, it's it's a horrible thing, but I really, it's a lovely river. There's not enough room in your boots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, excellent work. Um, <laughs> Hannah, how about you? In I don't know how to follow that. Um, but I'm sure you can. The most interesting thing around here, I reckon, is Pennard Castle. Um, and it's a ruined castle up on the cliff. And it is covered with sand and there's no real um, evidence for what's happened there so in that gap people have made up loads of stories about how it happened and how it got ruined and what happened there and so the most prevalent story is that it was covered in sand one night to punish a particularly cruel Norman overlord by the fairies the fairies were like no we're not having this and ruined his castle. Excellent. And then it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of people than the Normans. <laughs> well, we shall dig into our um, local histories and local folklores and hopefully come back with some more tales in the future. And if listeners find any interesting stories whilst they're looking into their local history, then do send them in. Oh, we'd love to read them out. Yeah, great idea. Uh, talking about people sending lovely things in, it's time for Sound of the Week and... We have a couple of beauties this week. Who would like to lead off with one of them? I've got a brilliant one here, which not only technically is our long distance listener of the week. Yay. Yay. Also, I love because the weather recently has been not the nicest around here. And I can get transported away with this one because it's from Amanda Hughes Horan. And it, the recording is her floating down the San Bernard River in Texas, listening to it you're just it's a completely sort of different sound to anything we get around here and it's it's a treat let's uh let's give it a listen sitting in my kayak on the san bernard river beautiful afternoon with yellow rump warblers chickadees american robins in the distance Beautiful, beautiful sunny day. The little chip, 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 it's a yellow rump warbler. Just drifting with massive bald cypress trees on either side of the river channel here. It's one of those beautiful Texas sunny days, sterling blue sky, just gently floating down the river. It's great because the there's different birds there. She, she's there's warblers and chickadees, which obviously we don't get in the UK. Uh, and it's lovely to hear them. Obviously, I mean, Texas has had its fair share of bad weather in the last week. So um, Amanda recorded that 
before then. I mean, it's she recorded it on a beautiful sunny day and she sent some photos of her in her kayak. But it's been horrific over there with those sort of strange snowstorms that they've got. So, you know, wish them all well in Texas. Mm. And Amanda, I hope you're doing okay. Um, keep us posted. And can I just say, she's up the level here of risky recording. We're risky outside. She's outside kayaking over water. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's up the game. Daredevil. So my sign of the week is a lot closer to home. It's from Hazel Taylor in Orpington. And it's a sound that's probably familiar to everyone. It's a sort of sound that I think you could go to Antarctica and listen to this and you would be transported back home. Well, that was the gorgeous, rather sultry tones of a blackbird. And they are just beginning to sing. We're in the middle of February right now, so recording this. And more and more birds are singing. I love that blackbird song. It reminds me of being a kid playing out late in the evening. And that sort of slightly drunk feel you get when you're really tired as a kid. And then just the warble of a blackbird. It brings that back. That that little recording brought it right back to me. So... um, Thank you, Hazel. I really love that. And it's sort of um, those lovely sounds and little experiences, little snapshots of nature are what we try to do on a slightly bigger scale with our new and very exciting Sound Escapes, which we broadcast every Friday. So what we're doing with our Sound Escapes is just giving you a short snapshot of nature in the countryside as it is right now. So we and others are going out and recording Five, ten minutes of beautiful, relaxing sound for you to enjoy before we all head off for the weekend. And they're introduced by our very own Hannah Tribe. I think they're great. They're just five minutes. It gives you a chance to stop for not that much time. Five minutes just to sit down, cup of tea in hand, and just tune out for a bit. Just relax, get away from the work, and uh, just take a break. And I think they're the perfect excuse to do that. And they're sort of an oral postcard It's exactly how the countryside sounds in that place at that moment. And so it's almost for people who can't go out for a walk, who can't experience what it's like at the moment, we're transporting you there. Lovely. That's a perfect way to put it. Um, And look out for those. We're releasing them every Friday. So they're the sort of bite-sized podcast. And the full podcast will obviously continue. A new episode is launched every Tuesday. Well, it just remains for me to say thank you so much for listening. And also a huge thank you for Dee Dee for chatting to me earlier. Uh, you can find Dee Dee's book. It's published by Batsford. It's called Treasury of Folklore, Seas and Rivers. And it's Dee Dee Cheney and Willow Winsham are the authors. And they've got another book coming out soon called Treasury of Folklore, Woodlands and Forests. So lovely, lovely stuff there. And you can obviously catch up with them every Thursday on Folklore Thursday on Twitter. So thanks, Hannah and Jack, for your inputs. And thank you, listeners. And we'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.